The Daily 202's Big Idea is sponsored by the American Beverage Association. Coke, Dr. Pepper, and Pepsi are offering more choices, smaller portions, less sugar. Learn more at balanceus.org. Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Wednesday, May 29th. In today's news, the House subpoenas for the president's bank records are put on hold while he appeals. A crush of children strains the border in Arizona, and the Democratic field may winnow significantly in September because of strict new criteria to qualify for the debates. But first, the big idea. The Supreme Court agreed to a compromise yesterday on Indiana's contested abortion law, an outcome that revealed its openness to state restrictions on the procedure, but also apparently favored a cautious and incremental path in confronting one of the nation's enduring controversies. On one hand, the court upheld a part of Indiana's 2016 law that places new restrictions on the disposal of fetal remains after an abortion. It reversed a decision by a lower court without the customary briefing and oral arguments. But the court said it would not revive another part of the law, which would have prohibited abortions if the woman chose the procedure because of a diagnosis or potential diagnosis of Down syndrome or any other disability, or because of the fetus's gender or race. The Indiana case was closely watched because it was the first time the conservative court reinforced by the addition of President Trump's two nominees, had the opportunity to take a case with consequences for the constitutional protections found in Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey. During the term that begins in October, the court will almost surely consider a Louisiana law that imposes restrictions on doctors who perform abortions there, a challenge to a separate Indiana law requiring a waiting period for an abortion after a woman has a sonogram is awaiting action before the high court, as is a restriction on a commonly used procedure in second trimester abortions. Even more restrictive laws, like the Alabama measure that would virtually outlaw abortion, are unlikely to reach the Supreme Court anytime soon. The unsigned opinion of the court, just three pages long, was matter-of-fact and devoid of broad holdings. Only Justices Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Sonia Sotomayor said they would have let the lower court's rejections stay in place. Fellow liberals Stephen Breyer and Elena Kagan were silent. But there were signs of tension. Justice Clarence Thomas wrote a 20-page statement linking abortion to the eugenics policies that were popular in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. He added in a footnote that Ginsburg's objection to the fetal remains portion of the law quote, makes little sense. She responded by correcting his use of the word mother throughout his opinion. In a footnote of her own, Ginsburg wrote, quote, a woman who exercises her constitutionally protected right to terminate a pregnancy is not a mother. Thomas said he agrees with his colleague's decision not to take up the provision at this time, but he also made clear where he stood. He concluded his 20-page concurrence by writing, quote, Although the court declines to wade into these issues today, we cannot avoid them forever. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar this hump day. Number one, the subpoenas from the House for President Trump's bank records were put on hold by a federal judge in Manhattan last night, pending the president's appeal. 
Trump and attorneys for the House committees that ordered Deutsche Bank, the president's biggest creditor, and Capital One to turn over years of the president's financial information jointly asked Southern District Court Judge Edgardo Ramos to delay enforcement of the subpoenas while an appeal is expedited through the courts. Ramos agreed to that request, but the judge rejected Trump's motion for a preliminary injunction and ruled that the president and his family are, quote, and this is key, unlikely to succeed on the merits of their claims. Meanwhile, in Michigan, Republican Congressman Justin Amash defended his decision to call for Trump's impeachment during a packed town hall meeting in his congressional district. He got a standing ovation for arguing that Congress has a duty to keep the president in check. During a two-hour meeting, one hour more than scheduled, Amash faced both supporters and opponents of his challenge to Trump. Asked why he doesn't leave the GOP and become an independent, Amash answered that Michigan election law makes it hard for independents to win. Asked if he would run for president as a libertarian, Amash did not rule it out. Number two, the crushing number of children arriving at Arizona's border has shattered a multi-billion dollar system that Congress and the White House built up over the last 20 years to catch and deport migrants. Nearly 169,000 youths have surrendered at the southern border in the first seven months of this fiscal year. More than half are ages 12 and under. Minors now account for four in 10 of all border crossings, far above previous eras when most underage migrants were teenagers and accounted for only 10% to at most 20% of all crossings. Border scenes involving children have been surreal. One boy recently surrendered in a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles costume. A girl carried a pink-clad doll. And border agents are feeding formula to newly apprehended babies. Migrants say they're coming to the United States because droughts are frying Central American harvests. They can't pay their bills. And gangs are recruiting their children. Officials in New Mexico separately said last night, that a privately built portion of the border wall paid for by a pro-Trump group with money collected from an online fundraiser did not have the proper permits to be constructed. The group has received a cease and desist letter to halt construction on the wall, which is being built in the outskirts of El Paso, just across the border between Texas and New Mexico. Number three, the Democratic National Committee announced this morning strict new criteria to qualify for the presidential debate that will take place in September. The idea, spearheaded by Chairman Tom Perez, is to dramatically winnow the field of 23 candidates. To appear in the party's third debate, which will be broadcast by ABC News and Univision, candidates will need to earn 2% support in four different party-sanctioned polls between late June and August. In addition, they will have to show they've attracted at least 130,000 donors since the start of the campaign, including at least 400 from 20 different states. That third debate will be held on September 12th, with the possibility of a second session on September 13th if there are enough qualifying candidates to require two stages. The stage can hold 10 candidates. As the race stands right now, only eight candidates in the field would qualify for the threshold laid out this morning by the DNC, including the 2% in the party-sanctioned polls. Many of the candidates are struggling to reach the current donor requirements, let alone the 130,000 donor number. All the candidates have started rolling out a flurry of policy proposals to try and compete in the primary of ideas. 
Joe Biden unveiled a pretty far-reaching education proposal in Houston last night. It was the first major policy plan he's put out since announcing his candidacy. The proposal came as Biden addressed a town hall hosted by the American Federation of Teachers. He pledged to triple Title I funding, which goes towards school districts with a high proportion of children from low-income backgrounds. Biden also promised to reform the Public Service Loan Forgiveness Program, which helps public school teachers pay off their student loan debt. He called for doubling the number of school psychologists, guidance counselors, nurses, and other health professionals, ensuring federal funding for children with disabilities, and banning assault-style weapons in high-capacity magazines. And he threw his support behind universal pre-kindergarten for three- and four-year-olds. Bernie Sanders proposed two policies last night meant to give millions of workers more of an ownership stake in their companies. The Democratic Socialist from Vermont said his campaign is working on a detailed plan to require large businesses to regularly contribute a portion of their stocks to a fund that would be controlled by employees, which would pay out a regular dividend to the workers. Sanders said he will also introduce a plan to force corporations to give workers a share of the seats on their boards of directors. Elizabeth Warren proposed a similar idea last year. Both of these ideas face significant opposition from the business community, of course. And Congressman Seth Moulton, the Democrat from Massachusetts, a Marine veteran running for president, revealed yesterday that he sought treatment for PTSD after his deployments during the Iraq War. He did so as he introduced a plan to expand military mental health services. And that's The Daily 202 for Wednesday, May 29th. Thanks for listening. I'm James Hellman. I'll talk to you tomorrow. Thank you.